Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode. Today it is English Wine Week, 19th to the 27th of June. So those of you that want to know what's going on, head over to winegb.co.uk and see what events are happening. If you're in the UK, you can obviously go and visit vineyards, they're putting on special activities. And those of you around the world, just check out what is happening on social media. Lots of Instagram lives, lots of stories, lots of information, but no matter what, make sure you grab a bottle of English wine. So today I'm going to be talking with Tommy Grimshaw, who is one of the youngest winemakers in the UK. He is the head winemaker of Langham Wine Estate, and you definitely want to know about these guys, apart from the fact that I believe they're producing some of the best sparkling wines in the UK, but International Wine and Spirit Challenge last year named them as Sparkling Wine Producer of the year. So Tommy's going to take us on a full breakdown of how traditional method sparkling wines are made. He's going to talk to us about how he chooses his blend and how he uses the main grape varieties Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. What each one of them has and adds to the blend and their characteristics so you can really truly understand what a winemaker of sparkling wine thinks, feels and can choose when making his wines. And we'll also talk about disgorgement, what that is, what that means and how it affects the flavours as the wine ages. You'll also hear about some of the funkier projects that Tommy's doing like frizzante in a keg. Have you heard of coal fondo before? Well, you will after this episode. Now guys, don't forget there is a transcript, so just go to the show notes and you can download it. And special request to all you lovely people, especially those who are listening on Apple Podcasts. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do leave a little review and a few sparkling stars if you can, because it helps the podcast become more discoverable. Guys, it is now time. Let's go and have a chat with Tommy. Tommy, thank you so much for joining me and uh, bringing your English wine knowledge to the podcast. Are you ready? Yeah, let's get stuck in. (laughs) So for anyone who has not heard of Langham Estate, obviously, what are they doing, right? This is a winery with a lot of winemaking talent, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think past and present teams have um, put Langham on the map, um, probably most notably we were named Best Sparkling Wine Producer um, in the world by the International Wine and Spirits Competition in 2020. So that's yeah. pretty mega. That is pretty mega. And that was last year. For anyone, just in case they're not sure, this was last year. A lot has happened since then. And I can imagine you're only taking it from strength to strength. It's kind of out with the old and in with the new, really, isn't it? I'm, I'm just going to get straight to the chase. You're rather young, aren't you, Tommy? <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I guess so. Um, yeah, I'm 25. I... Yeah, I got into it by complete chance. When yeah. I was 17, I messed up my A-levels pretty badly. And then I was left at a crossroads of either leaving school or um, or resitting. And I wasn't too too keen on the idea of resitting. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I left school. And, and that summer, I'd spent labelling and bottling wine at Sharpen Vineyard in South mm-hmm. Devon. Mm-hmm. And I was just super, super lucky to have Duncan Schwab, the head winemaker, who's an incredible talent, but also just a great human being. Um, took me under his wing and let me do my first wine harvest in 2013 
um, which I always remember then going to the after harvest party and not being allowed to drink. So I That's just spent outrageous. Like this- really? I mean, you did. They said you weren't allowed to drink, but you did, didn't you? Let's be like. They just turned a blind eye, right? Uh, no, annoyingly, the Duncan would have. Uh, Duncan would have, Duncan would have. But uh, yeah, the MD at the time was like, he was watching nope. like a hawk. Ugh, I know. Um, which is a nightmare. So then when when I turned 18, <laughs> I, was, I was pretty happy that I could actually start drink, start drinking, not on the job, but you know. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I did my first harvest um, after leaving school. And then, um, yeah, I went traveling for six months with some mates, just no interest in wine really at all. Just wanted, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Just went mm-hmm. off to what happens to be someone that, in the best wine regions in the world like central otago but i had no interest in wine i just wanted to do bungee jumping and just stupid things like that fair um, enough <laughs> yeah but i came back and needed another job so I, I went back to duncan at sharp and picked up another summer job mm-hmm. labeling and bottling but at, at this point i really got stuck into more of that to preparing the wines for bottling and things like that and getting more of an interest in the wine production itself and yeah. then stayed on stayed on so i was at, at sharp actually for six years in total so yeah the last last three years of my tenure at Sharpham I was the assistant winemaker mm-hmm. and just got to a point where I felt like I wanted to to move my career forward and, and try something new and um, whilst I was at Sharpham I set up my own little um, English wine promotional company called Emerging Vines. Absolutely um, I love this yes T- tell us a little bit about that then. Okay so yeah so with Tom Wedgery and Josh Beamish. The three of us were all working at Sharpen together. Mm-hmm. And we're getting fed up by the, the same sort of two things. Firstly, being sort of quite patronised and talked down to um, by sort of, you know, older older people that think, oh, you know, these young kids, they're not going to know anything about what they're talking about. <laughs> we're trying to do these wine tours and tastings. I'm like, I'm literally here just trying to, you know, talk to you about what we do at Sharpen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that got annoying. And then people also saying that our oh, English wine's really expensive and it's overpriced, etc. And I just felt actually what that came down to is probably a lack of an understanding of the production methods and the fact that it's the same cost as, you know, um, you know, some of the top champagnes. So that's why they're demanding the same amount of money, the same cost, and you know, often the same quality as well. Mm-hmm. So we decided to start Emerging Vines and do home wine tastings, private wine tastings, just to you know in, engage with people and share the story of English wine. And that took off. And now we've got a little online wine shop. We're doing private and corporate tasting events and. Yeah, so that's, that's pretty good fun. I really do see you and the other two really behind this English wine movement, which is so important, right? Yeah, well, that's, that's sort of the little slogan that we coined because we kind of felt like it was at that stage, like a little movement. And um, Oh, is that yeah, you? I, like... I just put that on my Instagram posts. Oh, well, congratulations. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that came from my weird little head. Um, oh, what a great but... weird little head you have. <laughs> weird. <laughs> One of the sounds, weirdest compliments, but I'll take it. Sounds rather condescending. It wasn't meant that way, but anyway. I'll take it. It's fine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it, so that's what sort of really led me to Langham because as we were looking at these tasting events and these um, and, and building this wine shop, we really wanted to focus on, like, very top quality wines but at a reasonable mm-hmm. price because we knew that we were always, with English wine, up against champagnes and the prices, it was quite clearly um, a contentious issue maybe for, for some of the consumers. So... We let, got led to Langham just because we were blown away by the quality of the wine for the price point. Mm-hmm. Um, and Daniel Ham was the winemaker. And when I saw a job come up for to be Daniel's assistant winemaker, I just, I leapt at it. Um, and I knew that Ollie Whitfield in the vineyard um, was incredibly talented at what he did. So I just thought it was a great opportunity to move more into sparkling wine production and a more hands-off approach to winemaking. 
uh, under Daniel. Yeah, Daniel was here for a year before I before he left to start Offbeat, his own winery, yes. and then. I was given the reins for Justin's sins, but hopefully he doesn't regret that decision. And, <laughs> um, that's basically my story in a nutshell. Well, I suppose, seeing as we've mentioned Daniel, I know he's been a, probably a great influence for you in terms of more of that low intervention approach. I feel like as we are talking about the wines and the vintages that I have in front of me, well, actually they're non-vintage wines, the two uh, brute wines that we have, but they are mainly 2018, which is a little bit before your time. So perhaps we pop them open. We'd have a little taste and you can talk about them and maybe where the winery is going to go under your direction now. What do you think? That sounds great. I'd, uh, I've already got mine open, so I jumped the gun. <laughs> well, you, you know how I told you I wanted to open them as we record. So you can see like if I do it politely and it's just a tiny little pop if, uh, or if I screw it up completely. Let's see. Here's the first one. Ready? Oh, there's nothing better than a little pop. We're going to compare these two. So can you tell me about these two blends that you have? Because one is more Chardonnay dominant and the other is more Pinot Noir dominant, right? Yeah, exactly. So Daniel made the decision in 2017 to take the classic Cuvée wine, which is like a blend of all three of our varieties, which Mm -hmm. is Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and to split them into two different styles. And that's something that I, I think is a great idea there's another oh no that um, one was a disaster it's just gone all over me oh no oh no it went all over the chair but it's fine don't worry i didn't waste too much oh well one out of two isn't bad <laughs> no. um so yeah the the corallian is um chardonnay dominant and the culver is pinot dominant mm-hmm. the names corallian and culver Culver is um well one of the chalk strata that run under our vineyard and then says corallian so we basically got about 12 different uh, layers of chalk under our vineyard ah. and Culver and Corallian are two of them. Um, I think Corallian is actually quite famous um, in geological oh, no. terms. Oh, I should know. I'm going to pretend I knew that then. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't know. I didn't know that. But apparently we've had a few geology buffs come in and they've, uh, they've been like, oh, yeah, oh, no, Corallian. Yes. And oh, Corallian. Oh, I love, I love a wine growing on Corallian soils. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. So these are literally just two of the 12 different types of chalk soils. Yeah, and then un- under within that, you've got your own um, all separate sort of substrates as well. So, yeah, basically it's... There's two of our strata that run under the vineyard and we, we're looking for names and they, that, that came to be because we're very proud of, of where we are in Dorset. Um, even I'm a Devon boy, I'm, you know, I'm very, proud of the, <laughs> I'm very proud of the site we have here in Dorset and the wines that we're yeah. producing um, as a team, you know, as I said, past and present. So we really wanted to, to have names that reflected where we're from. And this is in the Langham Estate, you were about... 12 13 hectares planted now is it yeah well, yeah about no about 12 and a half um mm-hmm. yeah never say never we might grow at some point but we're focusing purely on quality that's first and foremost everything we do from start to finish is quality driven um mm-hmm. you know hence, hence the fact we sort of took this hands-off approach in the winery it's not to be you know go with the trend and be more sort of you can't really see me doing inverted commas but natural um it was, it was purely quality focused and um, I'm sure we'll get on to our production methods a little bit later. But, oh, yeah, we the, will. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. The Corallian is Chardonnay focused, the Culver is Pinot focused. So from the Corallian, you're getting this much more linear orchard fruit profile, mm. nice salinity, some sort of citrus driven acidity. 
Whereas with the cold, if it's maybe slightly fatter, softer, more red fruit focused, slightly more creamy. Um, we work quite closely with um, Leon Sanderman uh, in London. And mm-hmm. Alex is one of their um, on-trade guys. And he's fantastic. And he's, uh, he's came up with this great concept that the Corallian would be a great for the summer and then the Culver for the winter, where mm. you kind of got that really nice, fresh, zippy uh, wine for the summer and then it's like warm hug in the Culver for the winter. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And honestly, I'm, t- I'm literally smelling. I haven't, they are so different. So we are going to talk a little bit more about blends in a bit. But the Corallian, the Chardonnay dominated, when you smell it, really it's very citrusy it's very kind of clean it's quite even for me a little bit herbaceous it feels like you're outside a little bit more lots of kind of even pineapple grapefruit but very direct and then exactly what was it a warm hug in the winter when you smell the culver it is a lot um deeper almost a little bit more savory of course the red fruits are coming through a little bit but more like um this strawberry shortbread whereas the the other one the Corellian is more this kind of lime zesty little bit of brioche but it it is it's lively they are so different I haven't even actually properly tasted them yet but on the nose wow yeah it's interesting you mentioned the tropical notes on the on the Corellian we found Mm. that the because I I joined in 2019 so pre-bottling so I did all the the blend the blends Daniel and I did together and all the tasting notes etc pre-blending and we were finding that a lot of the Chardonnay from 2018 was like super tropical loads of mango pineapple mm, um yeah. and then you know 2019 i found as much more sort of orchard fruits with sort of maybe and some white peach stone fruit in there as well so it's really interesting to show the vintage variation we have in in the uk and it's nice that you're picking up on those tropical notes oh, i love it when i get it right but <laughs> i'm just tasting the corallian now and apart from the fact we've said the tropical notes, but I do, the acidity is a real, it's a real zesty, grapefruity, lime acidity. But when I said herbaceous, I'm actually going to turn that more on the floral side. Like I wouldn't quite go as far as elderflower, but it's this slightly even more, it's a grassy floral aroma and freshness. Mm-hmm. Now I need to compare the Culver and then I'm going to tell you which one I prefer. Are go you for no, I don't know. I, I, to be honest, I, I think I'm, I think I already know what I'm going to prefer because actually I tend to like Blanc de Blancs. I prefer Chardonnay based um, sparkles. But let's say this, the Culver's got this much more baked apple vibe for me on on the palate. Yeah, um, and definitely is a little bit more creamy. It it is richer. It's heavier. I mean, the thing is, it depends on what I'm eating. But yeah, okay, sorry, Corallian. These that's, are the same price, aren't they? Yeah, so they're both twenty seven fifty, and I think that's something we're conscious of here. That you know, we're we're trying to produce wines that have got like bags of character, um, really complex, but they're not. We don't want it to be a conscious decision for a consumer if they're you know, it's, it's not cheap wine by any means. So you're already going to spend that much money probably to celebrate. Um, and if you're going to, you know, want to celebrate something nice, you could get a mass produced champagne or for the same price, you could come to Langham and, and get, you know, one of our bottles, which is, you know, very much the word artisans thrown around a lot, but I think, you know, mm-hmm. we're small producer and very hands on very small team producing you know, world-class wines for that same sort of price point, you could get a mass produced champagne. Whereas I think if we would start putting our wines in about 35 quid, the consumer then has to make that conscious decision. Do I want to spend another, you know, 
10, 7 pounds, whatever, to, to buy something English. And I just feel that the English wine industry is so young that we really want to make it as accessible as we possibly can. Um, and that's, that's the aim of the Colvin and the Corallian is you've got two completely different wine styles at, at that sort of more en- entry level price point for an English sparkling wine. Absolutely. The finesse and the elegance of the Corallian and the richness and the kind of creaminess of the Colvert, they're fantastic. And I would love to compare these against Lanzan or Moet because there's no way, as you said, the generic champagnes at this price point can win. Well, that's what happens with all these awards that um, certainly you guys have already won and a lot of the English sparkling wines are getting. But I want to, I don't want to talk about the other English wineries right now. I want to talk about these. And what I love as well, on the back of the bottles is the amount of detail you have put. So you're not just explaining on the back label the blend. You've got the vintage. You're actually explaining the amount of reserve wine you're putting in. You've got the exact dosage, when it was bottled, and disgorgement, which I love talking about disgorgement with sparkling wine do you want to talk a little bit more about that you were about the process of it everything <laughs> yeah okay so everything um yeah okay so to do traditional method sparkling wine is the same way that champagne's made yeah. um the second fermentation takes place in every single individual bottle mm-hmm. and at that point it's under a crown cap like a beer bottle cap instead of the cork and so that traps that traps any carbon dioxide that's released during a second fermentation in the bottle is trapped inside by the beer bottle cap. That yeast does the second fermentation and it it dies. It falls to the bottom of the bottle, and uh, there's a term called lees for that. So mm-hmm. uh, that lees has to legally stay in the UK, uh, stay in the bottle in the UK um, for a minimum of nine months. In champagne, mm-hmm. it's twelve months. We aim for, um, with a Culver, Corallian and Rosé, 18 months, which mm-hmm. is quite short, but we do it intentionally quite short because of the way we make our, what we call the base wine, the first wines. But mm-hmm. we can talk about that in a bit. Um, yes. But that lees, that that dead yeast, it's in the bottle, but you're not going to really want that in there for the finished wine, especially those pressures because the wine would just gush everywhere and you'd you know lose all your wine um, because the amount of sediment and pressure. Um, so we need to remove that yeast and that's the process called disgorgement Mm -hmm. and so before we actually get to disgorging we have to riddle the bottle so people may have seen these like a-frame wooden racks called pupitres or um, gyro pallets which is what most people use even in champagne you see these pupitres and they'll have an old man down in the cellar turning bottles Mm -hmm. but behind that's normally for show Yeah, it's, it's usually for show, unless you may have a really small producer, but uh-huh. um, normally behind the wall you'll have, you know, Rosie's gyro pallets. So basically they're big um, metal cubes, which we load 500 bottles into at a time. And over a period of a week, it takes these horizontal bottles and it sort of rotates them and inverts them at the same time. And then you end up with all 500 bottles upside down with the yeast and all the sediment in the bottleneck. Mm. then we're ready for the disgorge and what we basically do there is we've got a machine that does it but the principle is you've got your air bubble at the at the punt um instead of sort of it's at the bottom it's actually um inverted so it's at the top was your um, yeast is in the bottleneck and the machine brings the bottle horizontal and just before the air bubble moves along the bottle and hits the yeast which is in the bottleneck it pops the cap off 
the, the, the crown cap off and there's six bar of pressure in a in a most uh, sparkling wines mm-hmm. and that pops the cap off and the, that pressure forces the yeast um, and the air bubble out of the bottle and then a mechanical thumb comes over and stops you losing any wine. So you end up with a nice clear wine. Mm. Now let's talk about the fact that you have labelled the date of disgorgement. So why is it that we wine geeks love to know when the wine was disgorged? How does it affect the flavour? Okay, so then there's, there's there's probably two two parts to this. So mm-hmm. we've got the we've got the bottling date and then the disgorging date. So you can yeah. see how long that wine has had with this this lees, this dead yeast inside the mm-hmm. bottle. And that's important because it's this this lees aging that gives you this brioche, bready, toasty characters that people love in in, in sparkling wine. Um, so that shows you how long it's had on lees. It also shows you how long it's had on cork. Um, yeah. So once we've disgorged it, we add our dosage, which you'll see on the back label. Mm-hmm. Um, and they put the cork and a wire cage on at that stage. And it's important. We aim for th- we aim for six months, a minimum of three months of cork aging. Mm-hmm. Because this, this dough size is quite a thick um, sort of sugar wine mixture. And it needs that time to um, properly come together in the bottle um, for, the, for the wine to fully absorb the dosage. And also then you get the Maillard reaction, which which I love. It's basically the same as you know, when you when you put a bit of bread in the toaster or under the grill and you, you as it starts to brown <laughs> and turn to toast, uh-huh. you get that aroma release. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, um many like meat eaters out there, you put, you know, flash your steak in a hot pan and it it browns and it releases that aroma and you get mm-hmm. it, you, you don't really you don't really smell like bread when you when you know when you put it in the toaster, it doesn't really smell like that much but then when you're um you stand a few meters away once it's starting to toast and brown you get that that nice um toasting aroma and that's the maillard mm-hmm. reaction it's the it's amino acids and sugars reacting basically and it's the same ha- the same thing happens um in our wine although we're not applying heat so it's not the the heat and the the cooking that's triggering the reaction it's the acid in our wine is creating a reaction between the sugar in the dosage and the amino acids that are released um, from that from the dead yeast cells. And it takes a lot longer because it's, it's using acid rather than heat. But over mm-hmm. about six months, you get an incredible aroma release that you wouldn't have if you just sold the wine straight away. So that's the reason behind we do it. Yeah. And of course, as people may or may not know, having the lees, they act as this protective factor keeping the wine fresher and the minute you take away the lees the longer it is without that it's going to get it's going to get more tertiary it's going to get more maybe honeyed and the brioche notes and the toasty nuts will get more and more developed so I love the fact that for any wine collectors out there who can get hold of your wines they might want to buy a case mightn't they (laughs) drink yes drink a little bit now and then hold hold some of it back and see what it's like knowing when it was disgorged see what it's like the same bottle in six months later and perhaps a year later and really play around with that so I think that for any wine geek having the disgorgement date on the back label is awesome yeah I think it's important to note that we're a small producer I know alone being myself and my assistant winemaker Lauren and you know disgorging we'll do 1,000 to 1,500 bottles in a whole day so Mm -hmm. You know, you might buy buy one wine with the with you know the disgorgement date being the seventh of um, December, um, 
or you might, you know, and, and then you might buy, come back and get another one. And it might be, you know, the 12th of January. So it's all very small batch stuff. We're only a 30 acre site, grow all our own grapes. We don't buy anything else in. It's all grown and produced by us, everything done in house, um, you know, by very small teams. So it's all small batch stuff. Um, which I think is key to our success as well. And of course, let's talk a little bit about low intervention, right? Because everything is using wild yeasts, right? For the first fermentation, yeah. So yeah. to make to make our sparkling, I mentioned, you know, to make it sparkling, we add more yeast and sugar into our blend and then we bottle it with a crown cap. Before we can get to that stage, we need to create this, what we call base wine. It's, it's mm-hmm. still, still white wines. Um, so yeah, everything's harvested by hand here on our site. Ollie, the vineyard manager, will round up his troops and and get the fruit to us in, you know, excellent condition. Mm-hmm. We pay by the hour as opposed to piece rate, which some producers do. The oh, reason okay. we pay hourly is because well, if you pay by piece rate, people will just pick anything because the more they pick, the more they get paid. Mm-hmm. By paying hourly, it costs us more, but it means that we can tell people, you know, we only want to pick the best fruit. Um, anything that's not perfect, leave it behind. Um, so we kind of sort sort in the vineyard, and then we're getting the best fruit into the winery. We'll um, press our juice, and we leave it to settle for a little bit, and then it goes off into barrels or tank, and it will just naturally ferment using, you know, be the indigenous yeast. It's either in mm-hmm. the winery, on the grapes, might have been on our hands, in the barrels, mm-hmm. um, just a natural yeast. They will do our first fermentation usually with no sulfur at this stage either they haven't been filtered no fining agents so they're completely vegan um basically just not not adding stuff not trying to manipulate the wine in any way at this stage Mm -hmm. yeah i mean like ollie and the vineyard team worked so hard throughout the whole year i mean it's been absolutely chucking it down for the last month probably oh god this month is the wettest month like ever i'm sure not ever it's terrible right well i think maybe Almost is every. Yeah, it's, it's been awful, right? <laughs> so, but you got you got Ollie and the vineyard team out there in the vineyard being meticulous and doing everything they can to grow excellent quality fruit. It'd be a bit harsh of me to then, you know, just completely <laughs> manipulate the wine into something that I want it to be. Right? So, um, uh-huh. And that that also for me does it wouldn't reflect Dorset. And I think that one of the reasons we took this blurb off the back label because we could say the same back label as you know as as many people in and many other wineries around the world and say you know it's a wine that reflects our soil and everything like that mm-hmm. um but i feel like it's almost become a bit of a a, a marketing ploy rather than actually you know the, the true story of it so we genuinely believe that um by not filtering not finding and letting the natural yeast ferment our wines is the, is, is the best true expression of of our site and the fruit that ollie and the team are working really hard to grow so I feel like my job's basically just not to not to mess up their work. I was going to say, yeah, just just don't fuck it up. <laughs> yeah, basically. That... No, it's a lot more than that. Now, let's talk about your role specifically then. So you take in this absolutely beautiful fruit. Let's look at the Corallian, for example. So this it's a non-vintage, but mm-hmm. 83% of the wine is 2018. 17% is reserve. And mm-hmm. obviously it's 75% Chardonnay. 15% Pinot Noir and 10% Pinot Meunier. So yeah. how do you get to this point? How are you deciding? Obviously, we know it's a Chardonnay dominated blend. Why 15% Pinot Noir? Why slightly less Pinot Meunier? And why 17% reserve wine from other vintages? How do you decide to get to this point? 
Okay, yeah, so it's the, I find the corralling quite easy, uh, a lot easier okay. than the, col- uh, the culvert because we have a lot more Chardonnay than we do Pinot. So okay. it gives me a lot more to work with. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I think the culvert usually you're keeping back some of the, the best Pinot Noirs. You're going to think, okay, we're going to need quite a lot of Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier for the, for the culvert because that's going to be Pinot focused. Chardonnay then... Um, I have a little bit more to play with, uh, I think, with the Coranic because of the Chardonnay. But mm-hmm. I'm looking for specific parcels. They fermented spontaneously, so I don't know what they taste they taste like until this time of year. I'm just going through now the 2020 wines okay. and um, building tasting notes. So we'll we'll taste every single parcel. We'll do 10 a day, myself and Lauren. Mm-hmm. We'll score them out of 20 and write full okay. tasting notes of what, what we're getting. And if we're picking up things like nice salinity and citrus um sort of acidity quite linear um you know good weight good structure that's the sort of thing we're looking for on a on a corallian anything that really sings by itself you might we might earmark to a blanc de blanc that's a more mm-hmm. premium chardonnay but yeah and then the corallian just basically looking for like really nice rounded um a ra- rounded wine really it's going to be really approachable easy to drink quite young and we're tasting through every parcel and we'll end up with about 30 different parcels, um, you know, maybe 15, 20 barrels and some stainless steel. And we'll blend together what we feel is the style of Corallian. So again, mm-hmm. yeah, we're looking at that, maybe orchard fruit, we recognize citrusy acidity, some salinity in there, maybe sort of cut grass, hay, sort of thing. And these are all tasting notes that we find in the, in the Corallian. So we're just looking for these mm. parcels that we feel would come together. And then we can start pulling them together into our blend. So we don't start at harvest thinking I'm going to add a specific strain of yeast that's going to make my wine taste like Corallian. Our, <laughs> our hard work really is when it comes to blending and we'll have loads of different parcels that all taste completely different and we've got to blend them together to create a very similar style. So mm-hmm. each sort of version of Corallian and Colvin might be ever so slightly different, but generally speaking, they should be very similar. And that's where the reserve wine comes into play. Okay. So we're building up our reserve wine at the moment, and I've started like a mini sort of Solera system or a perpetual cuvee or no. So the mm-hmm. all our reserve wine is now in four thousand liter underground concrete tanks, and okay. we'll empty half each year, and that'll be our reserve wine to use for the blend, and then we'll we'll top it up with some wine um, from the previous vintage. Okay, cool. And then that helps. So you're using the same reserve wine that will go into the Corallian as it will the Culver, but it's just deciding how much of that reserve wine goes into each blend. Is that correct? Yeah, so we've we've got seven concrete tanks and I might use different proportions for each blend because some of the concrete tanks are more more Pinot focused and some are more Chardonnay focused. So again, it depends what I feel is missing from from the blends. If I feel that, you know, it needs... Maybe a little bit more sort of rounding off. I might add a bit more of the Pinot focus. Whereas if I think it needs a bit more of like a linear attack, then uh, we might look at some of the more Chardonnay focused stuff. So would you say, talking as a winemaker that is focused on sparkling wines, that your palate probably has to be the thing that is the most defined because you're just constantly having to taste different parcels, different tanks, older reserve wine tanks, work out how to make this blend similar to the year before. Do you think that is probably the most important thing of your job to keep consistency yeah i think so um I, yeah i mean i've my palate's super in tune to high acid citrus focused wines you know? mm. <laughs> so that's, that's, 
that's what I like to drink is because that's um, that's why palate's in tune uh, is is tuned into. Um, you know these these base wines that we're tasting and blending together, they're not really as still wines; they're too acidic. Um, mm-hmm. I always feel that as as a sparkling wine producer, we should get some free dental care or something because the acid just rips <laughs> the acid just rips through our mouths. But um, <laughs> don't think about it right now because yeah, that's always a worry with drinking too much sparkling wine. But for, for everyone listening, don't let that put you off. You're fine. Worry about no. Tommy, but you're going to be fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hashtag pray for Tommy. <laughs> yeah, that's a, <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a very privileged uh, issue to have. So, um, but yeah, so yeah, we're basically tasting like super high acid wines and uh-huh. just trying to blend together and then, and then having the experience and the knowledge of what that's going to taste like in two years' time. Um, mm-hmm. When it's got a bit of lees aging, once it's got the fizz, our wines are pressured at five bar as opposed to six and so a slightly low pressure. Mm-hmm. And the way we control that is we add slightly less sugar um, to the second fermentation the more sugar you add the higher pressure you're going to have because you used to give off more carbon dioxide are you finding that with extra brute is always the style so no more than six grams of residual sugar per liter yeah is that always so the consistency again I, yeah without sounding too um pretentious um like <laughs> the weird, i believe in just letting the wine the wine decide the wine speaks for itself there's every wine's got a sweet spot so yeah. we go we go into every not wine in the words of extra brute. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but of chick. Okay, that wasn't really no. Funny. Carry on. No, I I love a dad joke and have wine puns. So <laughs> oh keep my god, coming. dad joke! That means that it wasn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. Uh, yeah, but you did. No, carry on. So anyway, it all has a sweet spot uh, in terms of what is going to make that wine taste alive and vibrant. Yeah, exactly. So we like we approach. So before we work, decide on the dosage, we obviously do trials. We do trials and everything before we decide, you know, what to go ahead with, um, to make sure that you know the wine is the best it can be. And yeah, so we we approach every wine with the same dosage trials, and from there we can work out. You know, we just found that since we moved away from any filtration stopped using any fining agents um we used the indigenous yeast just to naturally ferment the base wines we've increased our amount of oak so now 50 percent asian fermented in oak to 50 percent in stainless Mm. steel since we've moved down this more hands-off approach which is much more time consuming um it's a lot more risky but since we've taken that approach we found that the less you strip out of the wine at the start in this base wine, the more character um, and and complexity you have in in the finished wine. So you don't have to add much dosage. You don't need much sugar. We're we're talking one and a half grams per liter on our Corallian and soon to be released Pinot Meunier, um, and you know up to four grams per liter on our current rosé. So super super low uh, sugar additions. But it just doesn't need it because there's so many layers and so much complexity already yeah. in the wine. I'm agreeing with that from tasting it directly. <laughs> and it's it's also the reason it's also the reason we you know we we don't have to lease age for so long you know 18 months you know it's it's, it's not a huge amount. Some people are putting their wines on lease you know for their entry level stuff at you know four or five years, mm-hmm. and yeah no I just I, because it you know it needs that much time for some wines for the acidity to soften and um. Uh, and to to get this complexity and this richness but we've just found that by using oak and um you know being a bit more hands-off and and letting the interstitial yeast do the ferment um and not stripping stuff out through the filtration yeah it's a bit more risky and you have to be on the ball as a winemaker a lot more but the resulting wine we think is you know we we personally believe is, is is the best outcome 
I love it. Now, we may come back to these wines again, but obviously I want to now crack open the rosé. Whilst I'm cracking open the rosé, tell me a little bit more. You obviously, I think, found that you learn a lot from Daniel Hammer, as we mentioned, and he obviously was in charge at the time of these wines but you're obviously going to take the winery in your own direction what I thought was quite interesting I read a little bit about a Cole Fondo style mm. frizzante wine in a keg so I'm assuming this <laughs> is all you now so whilst I'm opening up the rosé and trying not to spill it over my trousers what the hell is going on there yeah, so um, so yeah, I had a great year working alongside Daniel, um, and actually I quite I quite like the Colvin Corallian we've got out at the moment because Daniel did the harvest in 2018. We mm-hmm. did the blending and the bottling together, and then I've done the dosage and released it. Okay. So I think it's quite a nice. It's a um, half and half. Nice little, yeah. Yeah, so I feel the like I'm in position now. Yeah, so the handover wines, which I you know I really like and I'm very proud of, and hopefully he is as well. Um, Whoop. But yeah, in terms of this Cole Fondo and Keg, that was quite a fun. It was a fun idea. Like we're quite a young, dynamic team here at mm-hmm. Lang. It's not just myself. Like ev- everyone from you know in the winery and Ollie and, and Co in the vineyard and you know in our sales team in the cellar door as well. We've got we've got a good boss in Justin Langham who, who planted the vineyard and it's his dream really. He puts a lot of faith and trust in us and gives us a bit of freedom to experiment. Yeah. And try new things. So we we we've done some cold fondos for some contract clients, and we've done some of our own cold fondos for a little bit. So basically, cold fondo is um is a frizzante, so it's about lower pressure, it's about two bar pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've ever seen prosecco with a cork and a bit of string tied around around it, that's um uh, you know it's frizzante, it's low pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, cold fondo is an Italian method, uh, traditional method for prosecco. Um where it translates to with the foot or with the bottom. So uh, we've spoken about disgorging. Cold fondue is not disgorged. It's low pressure and it's cloudy. It's still got that, that lees, that dead yeah. yeast inside it. Um, and so that dead yeast brings a lot of um, texture to the front of the palate. It adds weight. Um, Maybe a little bit, a bit of saltiness of as well, isn't it? It's always a much kind of drier, slightly. It's, it, wait, it's the most natural way to make sparkling wine right yeah i mean like it, it does go for a second fermentation so we do mm-hmm. have to add a small amount of sugar and um, mm-hmm. so um we do have to slightly intervene but yeah this 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 idea of the, these key kegs these 20 liter kegs uh, with sparkling wine on tap came about i was actually um I was in a I was in a pub in um you know quite a very well-known chain of pubs um probably the biggest chain in the country and I love how uh, you're not saying what they they haven't sponsored the podcast so we're not going to mention them (laughs) yeah I just feel like I don't know why I don't know why no they haven't haven't given us any money no they don't get they don't get a shout out no come come on Weatherspoon sponsor this podcast oh look well you've ruined it now they're not going to give us anything carry on um anyway um sponsorships aside uh, <laughs> i was i was i was in a spoons with some mates after after the first lockdown and mm-hmm. uh i just saw that they had prosecco on tap i was like huh that's interesting mm, like that's i can't i don't have the kit to do um you know tank method the way they make prosecco these days um and you know it doesn't really fit with our ethos at langham to start you know doing mass produced um, sort of tank method wines so we we're like right that's not it's not for us but I I knew that it was going to be low pressure I saw that it was frizzante 
And I knew that the coal funders we made, um, which were much more fitting with the, the Langham ethos, were the same sort of pressure. So I thought, well, I wonder if I could just like, rather than fermenting in a tank and then putting in the keg under pressure like they would do for the Weatherspoons one, I mm-hmm. thought, well, why can't I just try and do a second fermentation in the keg um, in a coal, coal, coal funder method? Um, so I phoned up Key Keg, the, the company that supplied the kegs, and just said, look, can you put me in touch with someone that's doing this um and they weren't able to you know send me in that direction they advised that i don't do it um and you went i'm gonna do it (laughs) yeah they they just said they hadn't done any trials and they didn't know what it was like so they couldn't advise it so i just said look can you send me some kegs and then i can um i can play around so they sent me down Mm -hmm. three uh three kegs so we did a a white pinot noir coal fondue uh, mm-hmm. in those kegs and then due to various different lockdowns and harvest being in the middle as well we didn't actually get around to tasting that until December so I had no idea what these what these things were going to taste like I, I was confident they were going to be good but you know there's always an element of risk until you know um, mm-hmm. so we opened the first one at this bar in Bournemouth at Terroir Tapas and um, in, in December and yeah it was great and it sold, they sold out of this 20 litre keg in like two days um, so at that point, I was That's like, right, I think we're onto something mm-hmm. here. Yeah. So I was like, I think we're onto something here. Um, you know, England's first sparkling wine on tap. It's like relatively hands off. And, you know, it, it's a bit of fun. How we're does it to make taste? Wine so, yeah. So what I found with Cole Fondo, it's, you kind of got this, it's, they tend to be much more fruit forward. So our latest, mm-hmm. our latest um, edition, so I've done another 40, 10 rosé and 30 white. Okay. Uh, kegs which are going to be ready um well by the time this podcast goes out mm-hmm. um hopefully they'll be out and about for you guys mm-hmm. um yeah so they tend to be like a lot more fruit forward and then with this ye- with this yeast that's still inside there like you said earlier they tend to bring a bit of salinity and it's mm-hmm. really nice texture it's like grip um and good weight to the to the wine so it's, imagine like a bone dry all the sugar's fermented there's no dough size it's gone into it's like super dry but yeah really nice fruit in there and a really nice good acidity being english and cool climate with the salinity in there that quite complex but they're not they're not like at the same level as our traditional method sparkling wine mm. but that's not the point these kegs aren't here to try and you know take away from you know our traditional method wines because that's always going to be our premium product and what we're known for but we're big believers at Langham and just trying to make wine accessible and fun mm-hmm. and engaging um, and, and not snooty at all. And um, the kegs are just a way, a way of doing that. Okay. So we need to, for those of us in England, we need to start watching out for places that are doing wine on tap, first of all. And then perhaps we might be lucky enough to catch one of your frizzante keg wines. What are you calling this? Uh, yeah, so uh, going back to the chalk strata that run under our vineyard, there's another one called zig. There's another one called zigzag. Oh, zigzag! Um, oh, I love. Do you know what? Sorry, I forgot. Zigzag is totally my favourite chalk type. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I can't believe we didn't know that. Gosh, um, <laughs> silly me. Yeah, so uh, yeah, we're just like, well, you know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm sure we can have a bit of fun. That's we can it. have some fun with a label and stuff on that. So we, um, yeah, remember that? Remember zigzag? So um, we're gonna have zigzag and zigzag rosé. So how do you label a keg? <laughs> yeah, so so we're going to get these little, uh, there's going to be little labels for the handles because you won't actually, from where you are as a customer, ah. you won't see the kegs. Okay, just like beer, when you pour beer and it's the label on the on the handle, okay, yeah. 
In a yeah, platform. exactly, exactly. Same concept. So, uh, so yeah, and I think I think there's big things to be said for for Wine on Tap now. You know, it's not just these big, um, you know, big chain pubs. There's some uh, outstanding wine bars doing outstanding wine on, on tap. Because um, actually, you know, a, a keg keep, with these key kegs, there's no outside exposure to the wine until it's in your glass. They're really like you know, very simple but clever design, which means actually. Mm-hmm. You can buy a 20 litre keg and it'll last for three months and the wine will taste exactly the same when you pour your, pour your first glass to when you pour the last glass. Um, so actually you, get, you can get some, it makes some of the you know, incredibly good quality wines really accessible by the glass. And sustainability, presumably. We're not throwing around big heavy glass bottles, putting a whole load of mm-hmm. yummy liquid in a keg is more sustainable right yeah so at a minute the you know big thing about key keg is they're saying a circular economy and um you know the carbon footprint's much lower because it's much you know it takes a lot less energy to produce um one of these key kegs than it does a glass bottle um and then when you're done you know they're, they're recycled and they're going to get to a stage in the uk where they're aiming to where um you know, you'll give the kegs back to key keg and then they'll turn them into more kegs Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that that doesn't still still doesn't actually go quite far enough, and I want to explore my options of reusing kegs. Okay, next stage. Yeah, I guess another thing that Key Keg have have said, you know, we don't recommend you reuse the keg, but I want to see what happens if I do. They also said no at the beginning, didn't they? And you didn't listen to them, so you know. <laughs> yeah, but to be to be fair, since, since then they have been very supportive, and I'm like I'm a big fan of a key keg, so um, like, I'm not like yeah, I'm not going to say anything bad no. about them because they have been very supportive. But um, you know, if I if I can reuse a keg for me, that that's going to be much more beneficial yeah. um, than recycling it. So. Now, now, Tommy, important question: You said these kegs are twenty liters, right? Yeah, and they could effectively last three months. I mean, you know, how how good friends do we have to be with you for you to just give us a whole keg <laughs> to take home? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's not going to happen just yet. <laughs> oh, God, all right, fine. Well, that then leads me on to the rosé, which, by the way, I've been having little sips. I am happy to tell you, it's my favourite. Great, because my favourite had a lot as oh, well. Oh, really? So. And well, I'm going to say something. In general, when I drink sparkling wine, I actually tend to stay away from rosé. I appreciate that that of all the rosé can often be actually the most food friendly. There's a lot going on, but just in general, my palate prefers the lemony flavours, apple flavours, just the brioche. But this is like a Oh, the, the richness, but the elegance. It's loads of pastry and yummy, like, summer fruits. It's like a strawberry and cream combo. It's really delicious. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I think as I said, I'm a Devon boy, and I just take, I'd love to take a cream tea and just scrap the yes. tea and have a bottle of this instead. Um, you know, <laughs> I think that's where this would sit really nicely. It was the only English wine to take gold at um, the IWSC uh, this year, so 2021, um, which is pretty pretty cool. And it came second in all the Northern Hemisphere sparkling wines. So, uh, well, sparkling rosés. Let's just point. Let's just point out, everyone, above champagne. Hello, everyone. <laughs> the only sparkling rosé that beat us at uh, this year's IWSC was a um, 2008 vintage uh, champagne rosé. 
Um, well, this is know, pretty which... impressive, and this is a 2017 rosé, and uh, I can imagine that the 2008 vintage champagne was a little bit more expensive than this one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'd take an extra four bottles of our rosé, I think, personally, but I'm slightly biased. So. <laughs> <laughs> what is the price point? Because this is presumably a little bit more expensive than the Corallian and the Colver Classic Cuvées. Yeah, this is twenty nine ninety, so oh. still sub thirty pounds. So much more expensive. That's awesome. I'm so excited. Um, this is the the nose for me. It's just really aromatic, very very pretty. Um, yeah, it, and it's it's a nice mix between like it's like a shortbread biscuit with little dried red cherries inside, but it's yeah. still got but it's still got a nice fresh citrusiness to it. Yeah, I think you're always going to get that with with, with English wine and well, but just cool climate wines in general. You always get this fresh uh, acidity. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all our wines. The only thing we do inoculate for at Langham is is mallow. So all our wines go through full malolactic fermentation because of the acid we're dealing with, and we yeah. love that creaminess that it brings to our wines. So it softens the acidity, but it brings this amazing rounded creaminess. Um, and so again, when when we're making a rosé, we do is it, assemblage method. So we do actually make a small amount of red wine every year. So yeah, we use that to um, to colour the rosé. Again, by being hands off and in, in, in the indigenous yeast, if we were to um, make our rosé through sanye and sort of soak the skins in the juice and you know get get the, the pigmentation from the skins into the juice and then ferment it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that that rosé is going to taste like, you know, like, like you've said, cherries or, you know, um, strawberries or a nice creaminess in there. I couldn't guarantee that. So what we do is we make um, make a small amount of red wine, which again ferments naturally, and all our and loads of loads of white wines. And it's we then can start pulling out the the parcels of uh, white base wines that are giving us these creamy strawberry cranberry um, profiles pull them together mm. and that's our rosé and then we get an extra bit of red fruit hit and nice texture when we add about six percent of the blend is, is is our nice pinot noir red wine mm. it really works and actually i noticed as well you've put four grams of residual sugar mm-hmm. per liter in this so just a little bit more than the others but it and of course it's completely dry but just having that almost a little bit more fruitiness this is the kind of wine that i would want with lobster if you don't mind if you want to serve that when when i come see you next <laughs> Yeah, or, uh, or a fish finger. Fish finger, perhaps <laughs> not. I actually, I was going to say, you jokes aside, dad jokes and all that, I was going to say crab cakes because I think it could really go with that little bit of extra spice as well. So there you go. That's yeah, a bit, that's crab true. cakes are a bit cheaper. So if I can't get yeah. my lobster. <laughs> go for your crab cakes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had this Yeah, I had this the other day, which is like a nice, uh, it was like, uh, it, was like a veg- it was like a vegetable couscous, like winter veg couscous with mm. a bit of spice in there. And that went really nice, you know. Like, I think vegetables, uh, especially like coming into summer season now as well, like and asparagus season, like mm. these like barbecued veg and asparagus, they're like notoriously hard to pair wine with. Um, but rosé and sparkling rosé can always be like a great go-to. And for me, this is an incredibly versatile wine. I'm mad about it. Um, and yeah, I'm just super happy to see this wine. Like, is, Dan, Daniel was the, the winemaker at the time in 17 and did the blending and the bottling. I've done a dosage on it, but 
I'm just super stoked to see that wine that I'm so like, happy with um, doing so well and getting received so well. I'm going to enjoy this later, I promise. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Now, I just want to ask you just a little bit more about Pinot Noir, Chardonnay and Pinot Meunier and how you as a winemaker find all three of them are in terms of their character, what they contribute, certainly being in England. What are your thoughts on these three champagne varieties, shall we say? Yeah, so I think um, I think they're brilliant and good. are quite, are, yeah, uh, in a nutshell, that's it, good. Um, no, I think, yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm obviously a big fan. I think they do uh, great things for us at Langham. We're, if you look at our geology, like we're sat on, um, we're in Dorsey, we've got Kimrich and Portland just down the road. If you look at the Obe region of Southern Champagne, mm-hmm. they're on Portlandian and Kimmeridgian soil. Mm-hmm. We're on Portlandian and Kimmeridgian soil. So mm-hmm. it's like, a, yeah, exactly. That fits. And we've got the same re, uh, sort of climate that the Champagne region had 30 years ago. So, you know, we're, we're in this, this sort of, um, in this cross section where actually it makes total sense to plant what they're, what they're planting. Um, we've got their expertise that we can nod our head to, you know, not directly copy, but we can nod our head and take inspiration from them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people, people know the varieties as well. So if they grow well, then, you know, I'm, I don't see, I don't see why you wouldn't want to plant them. They're, you know, noble varieties, they can be tricky. We're in a cool climate, but growing anything in England is always going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. So it's where Ollie and the vineyard uh, team, where their expertise really comes into play and making sure that we can keep sprays to a minimum whilst not, um, not, whilst it's not, it's not at the detriment of the, of the fruit quality. So things like leaf stripping and canopy management to make sure there's good airflow through the through the vines so you don't get such big disease build up but there's enough of a canopy there that we're going to get fully ripe fruits so throughout the year there's so many like so many decisions like that that um you know pay uh, play such a big part in in growing ripe fruit and then in the winery like these three varieties are a dream to work with if we've got good fruit for me the chardonnay here at langham from year to year so it can be so different so as i mentioned 2018 we get these amazing tropical really ripe flavors um cooler years we might get much more orchard fruit or you know stone fruit white peach maybe um pinot tends to bring this nice sort of red fruit focus and good ripe years you might get like ripe strawberry or sort of confected raspberry and in other years you might get like cranberry and things like this mm. And then Meunier always brings this amazing floralness. It's like on a palette, it's super round and good weight to it. And really, it brings this mm-hmm. amazing structure. But rarely it sings by itself. So 2017 and 2018, we actually did two to 3,000 bottles of, of single uh, variety Pinot Meunier. Mm. Otherwise, otherwise, I'm a football fan. I'll always say, it's, uh, for me, it's like this holding midfielder. The, the role... <laughs> The, the role of Pinot Meunier is not to be, you know, the superstar. It's, okay. it's to be there and it pulls the strings in the background. It really mm. often goes unnoticed and it allows Pinot Noir and Chardonnay to sing and perform at their best. Um, and for well me, done, it's, you know, it's an un- yeah, exactly. It's, it's an unsung hero um, and it's, it's vital to, to our blends and, and what we do. So, I yeah, I, I think all three varieties coming together and if we can blend them correctly... Uh, and get the balance right then you know the, the wines turn out okay 
I love it. I think you're doing a great job. Now, before we finish off, apart from this Colfondo, the zigzag, rosé and the mm. white, any other crazy experimental projects, anything else people need to keep their eyes, ears and tongues open for? Uh, yeah, so I've got, I've got a couple of couple of ideas. Um, oh, yeah. One that's already one that's already in motion is like a Solera Blanc de Blanc. Okay, cool. So gonna the the best five hundred liters of Chardonnay uh, each year. So we bought five hundred liters of at the minute twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, and twenty nineteen. Cool. So Daniel kept back five hundred liters of twenty seventeen and five hundred liters of eighteen. Um, I decided to blend the two together. Um, and add 500 litres of, of um, 2019. And we've got a 2,000 litre oak fooder coming uh, next Ooh, week. So okay. it's going, in, going into that. So it's basically going to be like the best Chardonnay from each year. Um, and it's just super complex and amazing. And so we've bottled um, 500 litres worth already. And we're just going to keep doing that. So we'll bottle 500 litres worth, top it up, bottle 500 litres, top it up. Um, with the best Chardonnay each year. So that's that will probably be the first instalment of that was bottled um, July 2020. So I imagine 2022, 2023 might might be ready. I don't know. We'll see, cool. see what it tastes like. Mm. Um, so that's going to be fun. Um, yeah, and I've got a, f- a few, few little other things that I'm going to keep close to my chest for the <laughs> no that's fine you've got to keep a few things secret but for everybody listening i know i have a lot of listeners in america i am very sorry to tell you that they are not being exported there yet yet norway norway is getting a little bit but i checked with you didn't i that that's it at the moment england and norway yeah for the moment but um yeah never say never and watch this space but um american importer just just give tommy a call yeah <laughs> get in touch Hit tommy up I just want to ask you one question. If people are not going to drink English wine, which they absolutely should be, what's been your inspirational wine region? What is, is there a favourite region somewhere around the world? Yeah, I'm, it's hard. I've got two because I've got a white and a red. Ooh. Um, oh, lovely. White, I love Assertico. I love this sort of like saline acidic. Ah, okay. But yeah. with this sort of stone fruit, some, some, a little bit tropical. Uh, from like, I yeah, love Greek wine too. Usually, mm, from, okay, San, usually from Santorini. There's some amazing... No one does it as well as Santorini. I, yeah, I'm still... Mainland, okay, but oh, it is, it's Santorini, isn't it? I know. I, yeah, and I just think, you know, it's the way that they've adapted to train the vines and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm a massive fan of the wines from Valtellina, which is on the Swiss Italian ah, border. So very interesting. Yeah, I've got. A, you had to be different, didn't you? <laughs> so one of one of my best <laughs> one of my best mates, um, Ali. He's he's lucky enough to have family from Lake Como, so we've we've okay. been out there. And yeah, just a little bit north of Lake Como, you get this amazing region called Valtellina mm-hmm. where tiny little terraces um i think actually if you put all the terraces together it'd be the longest uh wine region in the world um i didn't know that yeah um just all these tiny little terraces um famous for nebbiolo they say that it was where nebbiolo is from before before it was taken down to piemont um Mm -hmm. and yeah they call it kievanaska and um or kievanascha and it's uh <laughs> yeah italians don't say anything don't no, correct it yeah, um i've probably said that completely wrong but yeah it's basically they, they yeah. do some amazing slightly more cool climate reds from nebbiolo but they also do whites and sparklings um and, yeah, your regions but yeah I, I love i love the nebbiolo from from Valtellina. 
um, Arpepe, A-R-P-E-P-E. Oh, yes, they are fantastic. Totally agree. Yes. Yeah. And the P- yeah, people will recognize it because it's like capitals, non-capitals, capital, non-capitals. Yeah, yeah amazing producer. Yeah. Amazing producer that mm-hmm. we stumbled across last time we were out there. And um, they're imported to the UK by Tuto Wines. And I think they're like their they're Valtellina Rosso is relatively accessible. Um, but yeah, if you can get a bottle of their, some of their Grumello wines, it's just amazing. There you go. Well, let's not sell them too much, but uh, <laughs> England, England, England. But no, really interesting to hear your opinion on other wine regions. Toby, thank you so much. Everyone who's listening, I'm sure, is now either going to grab a bottle of Langham Estate or going to be keeping their eyes, ears, and as I said, tongues ready for when they get the opportunity. So really appreciate you talking about your wine. That's great. And I mean, we're, we're open with our cellar door as well, doing tours, tastings. We've got a restaurant. So if you ever endorse it, come check us out. Doors are open. Fab, I'm coming. I'm leaving now. I'm <laughs> ending record and I'm on my way. Thank you, Tommy. See you shortly. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Those wines were fab. I hope you learnt loads with that episode. I thought Tommy was awesome and super informative. Now, as always, I leave you with a wine quote. And today I've chosen an old English toast. And very simply, it says... May our love be like good wine, grow stronger as it grows older. I'm raising my glass to all of you. Enjoy English Wine Week 2021 and I'll see you again on another episode. Cheers to you.